Hi, uh, Graham Rayner here, and welcome to episode 11 of Sparks of Madness. This week, we I speak with Paul Dennis, um, who's a comedian who um, he's been gigging on and off since 1999, and um, he's an interesting guy. He's recently, in his early 50s, been diagnosed with ADHD. Now, ADHD, if you're aware of it, you'll know it's not a mental health condition, and this is a, a podcast about mental health and comedy. However, ADHD can have a profound impact on your mental health, um, and the challenges posed by ADHD can certainly um, cause your mental health to fluctuate. Um, so we, we talk about that at length, and um, it's been really interesting to speak to him. So I hope you'll enjoy it. If you do, um, please like, subscribe, comment, share, and let me know what you think. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what you guys make of it. I found him really interesting, and I hope you do too. So please have a listen and enjoy episode 11 of Sparks of Madness. Thank you. Okay, so um, welcome to episode 11 of Sparks of Madness, and this week my guest is Paul Dennis. Hi, Paul. Hi, Graham. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks for having me on. Good, good. Um, and you're another one of the guests on a podcast that is someone I haven't yet had the, the pleasure of meeting. Um, so uh, that's about half and half so far out of the episodes we've had of some people I know, some people I don't, and I only know by reputation. Um, so um, I'm hoping to meet you at some point in the future, but I thought we could have a really good chat about your career because you've been in and out of comedy for over 20 years. Um and you've got some interesting stuff to talk about. So um, you started comedy in the, the last millennium in 1999, is that right? Yeah. Um, that was, uh, wow, yeah, 21 years ago. Um, I was, uh, I'd been, I mean, I've been interested in comedy since I was a, since I was a kid. Uh, and indeed, when I, was, uh, when I was in my mid-teens, I said to my dad, you know, that I fancied giving it a crack and he was uh, most discouraging. Oh, you don't want to be going into those dark, dingy clubs. Oh, you know. <laughs> um, and he was a Baptist minister, so you could see how he wouldn't want, uh, you know, the dark side of show business to be overshadowing <laughs> his boy. Um, but yeah, he managed to, uh, to sort of put me off that and I sort of, uh, I was a musician for many years. Um, and uh, which is you know, equally unsavoury an idea for him. Um, but uh, nevertheless, it had to come out some way. Uh, but yeah, towards the end of the 90s, um, I, uh, I decided that, uh, you know, having, you know, been such a monumental pain in the arse in my social group, but constantly sort of, you know, reciting this bit of stand-up or that sketch or whatever, um, that I should, uh, I should stand behind a mic and give it a shot. And how did you get started? Did you just go to an open mic or what did you do? Uh, uh, no, actually, one of my friends, well, I was living in Basingstoke at the time, and uh, one of my friends found a, a flyer that a local theatre group had been putting out um, for a, a stand-up comedy course uh, that was being run in a function room above a pub in town. Um, and uh yeah i'd becoming i'd become more and more of a burden to my friends uh over those few months talking about oh really well do you think this is funny you know all that kind of thing um and i guess by presenting me with the flyer he was going you know shit will get off the pot mate this is just <laughs> yeah. put your money where your mouth is paul yeah yeah um so i went along to it and uh yeah i i mean i'm sure it must have been uh, a quite disappointing turnout for the two actors uh, who were there teaching the course, but I was the only one who showed up on the Monday. <laughs> uh, 
and they ran it sort of every evening, Monday to Friday. And then on the Friday, then uh, we performed the stand-up that we'd written. Actually, on the Thursday night, another guy did show up. Um, and so that enabled us to, you know, establish a little bit of camaraderie and be able to um, make the showcase um, well, a bit longer. <laughs> Rather than just you. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. exactly. Cool. Um, and, and it went all right, clearly, because you're still doing it now, so... Yeah, it went great. I mean, after that first session, obviously, it's quite focused attention to receive if you're the only person there. So for me, it was a big advantage. Um, and I just found myself completely uh, immersed in the process immediately. Um, I wasn't really foreign to writing at all. Um, I've been you know, writing songs and, uh, and, and bits, of, bits of funny things, but not really with a view to you know, trying to perform them or, or sell them um, in the way that writers you know, live now. Um, so I, I was used to the whole sort of like you know, revisiting ideas, developing and, and editing and that kind of thing. So um, having then the focus of, of going for you know, jokes in a row and cutting out the, the loose flesh uh from them i just i just felt like i took to it like a duck to water i mean there's no guarantee of the results but certainly the process i was very comfortable with and i just kind of yeah this is awesome <laughs> what did you get out of um comedy that you didn't get out of music or was there something different about the reaction that that sort of appealed to you um there is there is an extra there's extra octane you know it's more it's like an extreme sport in a way um i can i can sit at the piano and i can play you a song and you know that i've written and if you don't like it well that just means that you don't like that song it doesn't mean that i'm a rubbish piano player or a shit singer or that i'm a crap songwriter it just means that you don't like it because you, you know those are all disciplines in which one can be uh you know proficient um objectively you know um mm. But as a stand-up, I felt I know you know I, I know that there's you know there's taste in stand-up too, um, but the the sort of the proficiency impunity bar is considerably higher. So um, at at the point where you know a, a stand-up is is well established in in the basics of the craft, um, after that point, then it's a matter of taste. But in that zone. If you tell a joke and they don't laugh, then it's your fault, you know? Um, it is is entirely raw. It's just I can't hide behind the instrument or my skill as a musician. I can only present, um, you know, the ideas that I think are funny. And um, and that being so immediate, um, uh, the, the immediate reward, of course, is, is another thing. You know, you tell a joke, you get a laugh straight away if it's funny. Uh, you play a song, um, uh, you know, an open mic in a, in a music uh, place, and you know you might get a smattering of applause when people realise the music stopped, because hardly anyone is really giving you their focused attention. But in stand-up, it's necessary. You know, it's an actual a vital part of the process that you give it your full attention. And um, yeah, I'm very attracted to that. <laughs> Good. And and so you did your showcase in '99. Mm. And what was your sort of journey into performing more regularly after that? So, uh, yeah, obviously I didn't want to let the momentum, um, uh, you know, leave me. So I, um, uh, I got hold of uh, Time Out, which I was buying anyway. I was working in London, so I was, you know, I was, I was buying Time Out anyway. And in those days, the, you know, the, the comedy schedule for things that were going on, 
um, was listed in timeout and you know everybody just bought that so um, I looked through the listings there and I found uh, I found an open mic that was being run by Paddy Bramwell's in a purple turtle up in uh, Angel um, I don't think it's there anymore and uh, yes yeah, so I just called the number people just put their phone numbers in timeout in those days <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I just uh, called call them up and, uh, and booked myself a spot and uh, yeah I only had to wait a couple of weeks I mean there wasn't anywhere near the level of saturation uh, in the yeah. circuit as there is now of course um, yeah. yeah so I went and, I went and did that and uh, I mean it was very much like like a, a monologue you know I hadn't I hadn't learned to pause for laughs um, I was very much having done some theatre when I was younger uh the teaching that we were given was that, you know, if you're playing a funny character, you just say your lines in character and you don't wait for laughter. You just carry on plowing through. If the audience laugh, then you wait for it to die down a bit, but you mm. don't, you don't play for it. Um, so to me now, I'm just delivering a monologue and if the audience laugh, they laugh. Um, and that kind of worked in my favor for a couple of gigs. Cause you know, obviously, you know, my, it, it it wasn't going to be brilliant stuff straight out of the out of the um what do they call them the boxes the stops the I'm talking about the dog race things out of the trash yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know it wasn't going to be like that so in a way the fact that I was cramming all of this material into a short space of time kind of protected me from the silence mm. and mm. um you you even ended up quite relatively quickly setting up your own night didn't you is that is that right uh yeah um now i used to <laughs> so I'd, I'd take my lunch i was working up at old street and uh i would take my lunch every day and there was a a, a branch of the litton tree um just to sort of across the road there and i'd got in and i'd have a pint and i'd have a pie and, and chips and that and and just sit there and i'd chat to them it was always very quiet in there um and i got chatting to the manager and you know it was gassing about comedy and you know somehow we decided that i was going to set up a room in there um, now it's this massive sort of floor, completely open plan. It's the wrong room to do comedy in, um, but nevertheless, I had an opportunity. It was very near to work, so I could finish work, you know, go there and, and set up this night. And I did a few shows there, but then, um, but then I think the the regional people, you know, behind the Litton Tree, um, had decided that they wanted to take charge of it and do something else with it. Um, so my little night had served its purpose in getting this manager his notoriety within the organisation, um, and so uh, and so it was discontinued after uh, I don't know five or six shows perhaps. But by then, of course, you know I'd met a bunch of the people on the circuit, and oh, that's the best way to meet people. You know, showing up um, when you're when you're brand new and not really knowing. Uh, you know, who you can talk to, you know, what you should say if you do. It's, it's quite nerve-wracking, I think, for somebody who just shows up um, uh, on the fly um, and getting to know people. But, of course, if you run your own night, you've got that you've got that balance of, uh, okay, well, you're brand new, so they've got something on you, but you're running a night, so you've got something on them. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that kind of balances the power struggle out a little bit. Um, it's well <laughs> i said power struggle i mean i didn't really see it as that um it was it was more about sort of you know having confidence and uh and wanting to get to know more about what was what was going on you know which which places you can do which perhaps aren't listed in timeout or you know uh, which places are a bit rubbish etc um so that was that was really cool and uh you know i started hanging out with a few people and uh and then i was told that there was a, a place in covent garden um 
there was a pub, um, the Kemble Head, it was called. It's, uh, it's a Thai restaurant now. I walked past there the other day. Um, well, not the other day, months ago. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, so the, the, the landlord there was uh, was open to having something up in his function room. Mm. And so they recommended that I go and go and have a chat to him. So uh, Comedica's directors uh, then moved to the Kemble Head. Nice. And then um, your day job took you far, much further afield. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it, my, yeah, my day job did. I mean, sort of, I, I'm, I'm a, an IT contractor, so, you know, my contract came to an end um, and I was looking for work and there was this... Um, there was this, you know, they send out these emails, recruiters send you emails all the time, you know, we're looking for this kind of developer to go and do that. And this one came out and said it was in New York City. And I was like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a bit flash, you know, I wonder if I'm good enough to go and do that job. So um, uh, it took, you know, a good, a good few months to, uh, to get through it. You know, I had to have a, you know, a telephone interview with a guy in New York. And then I had to go and, you know, apply for a visa and give them all, all sorts of, uh, you know, personal details and stuff to be vetted so that they could get me this special visa to go and work over there um but yeah i um i got the job and um and i left yeah i, I sort of arrived there in august of 2000 so i handed over communicus erectus then to another comedian um and yeah went to well went to new york city baby <laughs> mm. and you did gig while you were over in the states absolutely yeah um no i didn't uh, i didn't even stop for breath i was um uh, so until I found an apartment, um, I was I was staying at this uh, I was staying at this hotel. Um, you know, I'm in a two star hotel, right? It was you know, <laughs> yeah. I was on twenty twenty seventh Madison, I think it was, and I was uh, so I was in this hotel for a week, and um, just down from there is a place called the Gershwin Theatre, and I was just down and you know wander around, uh, you know, seeing what it was about as you do when you're sort of new somewhere. Um, so I'm jet lagged to hell and I walk past this place and in one of the front rooms there's a there's a, a piece of A4 that's been printed on somebody's personal computer that's stuck to the inside of the window. I go stand up comedy tonight. Like I see these people standing around, there's a guy in the studies telling jokes. I'm like, this is a godsend. I've been here <laughs> ten minutes. I've found I've found a gig. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> um, so you went in for, for for that gig. Did you did you just watch? Uh, did you end up on, on performing on that night? By the time I got there, I mean it was it was already closing, and this was, um, you know, it was one of those it was one of those nights where it wasn't an open mic. It mm. was uh, it was somebody. I mean, this the guy who was running it, Patrick Borelli. He'd been around for for quite some time, you know, and he was very good. Um, so you know, typically it's, the way that it worked in New York in those days was that you saw um, you saw people at another show, and if you ran a show and you were selective, then you would book them based on based on you having seen their set. Um, so until I got seen at the base level, mm. um, then more sort of established, um, you know, which was still, you know, there were still open spot nights, but in New York, it's, uh, it was so much more of a, a mishmash because you had people, I mean, there was one mic I did like on the Lower East Side once upon a time and Dave Chappelle showed up, right. And did a set. And it's, you know, that was that, it's that kind of place mm. where the most amazing, uh, things can happen. Knew what was going to happen. Yeah. So what would you say the main differences were in terms of gigging in London and then gigging somewhere like New York? Was it just that you were, you were a, a, you know, a guy with a different accent or was there much difference in the style or what would you, what would you say? Um, well, I mean, obviously the, the, the modes of speech and the way that, you know, people, you know, put their sentences together are different. I mean, that's a basic cultural uh, differentiator, but um 
I th the, the main thing about the, the circuit itself is that they were far more established in this sort of bringer philosophy. Um, and that's that um, on the, you know, on the ground level, so, you know, gigs in bars and stuff, um, there wasn't any of that nonsense. Uh, yeah. You know, if there were four people there, then you performed to four people. And it was very Edinburgh in that way. Yeah. Um, there were some... There was there was one that we called the train wreck, and this was a favourite for a lot of us because you could show up there without booking, and you could um, you would definitely get a spot because they put everybody on. We called it the train wreck because it ran for so long. Um, so you'd show up there at seven o'clock, and you pay four dollars at the bar, which got you a drink. Now a bottle of beer was four dollars, so it's not like pay to play, but the bar has to make something because this back room of the pub was so big. Um, and it had a big stage and it was perfect, you know. Um, so at the beginning of the night, there's like 50 comics. And if they've brought friends, well, you've got at least sort of 50 people watching you. You know, even if half of them are sort of thinking about their own material and are not really listening, that's still 25 people who got a chance of making laugh with this mm. half material that, you know, um, you know, let's face it, at that level isn't going to be very good anyway. But um, it's uh, it was really it was a really wonderful place to play. And obviously, you know, they, they drew your so you got a token um um and you, know, you write your name on the back of this raffle ticket and they did it like a lottery so um that was kind of fair you know and some nights you know you'd be on at nine o'clock playing to a full room and some nights you'd be on at half past three in the morning with like three of your friends absolutely too hammered to make sense of anything <laughs> and uh <laughs> sounds brilliant to be fair it sounds brilliant you know and, and just for those listening who might not be uh, familiar with the way comedy works in this country um in london these days at the lower levels of comedy there are gigs called bringers which is where you don't get to go on stage unless you bring someone to watch you um and in the rest of the country we do it a sensible way that isn't that fucking ridiculous <laughs> and you have an audience that actually wants to be there if you're lucky. So um, that's it, basically, London versus the rest of the UK. Um, so um, you were over in New York for a few years, um, mm. for, for a while. What, what brought you back? Uh, uh, well, I mean, in short, 9-11. Um, so mm. I went over in 2000 and, um, and uh, moved, to, uh, moved to Brooklyn in... Um, in August of 2001 and uh, yeah the landlord in, in Jersey City where I'd been living and so let's come out of the lease um, about you know, a month early um, because we weren't going to stay anywhere and I guess it sort of suited their purposes as well but so if I wanted to I could say that if it wasn't for me coming out of that lease early I would have been right underneath the World Trade Center when it came down on September the 11th mm. um, but I mean Who's to say? I mean, I was doing comedy. I was very often up late and, you know, it was quite normal for me to not arrive at the office until 11 o'clock in the morning because I'd been up so late because that was my pattern. I'd get in, I'd work until like seven or eight o'clock at night and then I'd go straight into Manhattan and, uh, you know, and do whatever gigs I had uh, organised. Um, so that meant that, you know, I was always up late and so I was always late for work. And my boss was kind of fine with it because... You know, I was doing my work, so that was yeah. that was okay. Um, so whether I would have been on the path train uh, when the planes hit, um, it, you know, it's a coin yeah, toss. So I, yeah. I think that's probably the first time I've ever mentioned that, you know, in, in a public forum. Um, yeah. But, and, but the thing is, well, it's such a profound event, isn't it? And, and it's, mm. you know, we're living in strange times at the moment, but 
it is one of those everyone remembers that day who was you know yeah. uh, what happened and um for it to have then brought to an end your time in the country as well is you know it's kind mm. of far-reaching ramifications but so, so your your work effectively over there dried up as a result yeah yeah they sort of shortened the hours you know but okay you'll be up four days a week then three days when it got to two days i couldn't really afford my apartment anymore now there were ways around solving that problem but you know i would have had to you know apply to stay in the country uh, and my wife had already returned to this country so it just seemed like the right time to come home yeah yeah and then um back you came and you've had a, few, a, a bit of time out of comedy um since then until quite recently is that right was it as big a gap as that or did you dabble in between? Uh, well no that was the beginning of, of two gaps uh yeah. in my in my live comedy performance uh because when i when i came back from america i, I came home to swansea and um there wasn't any comedy uh, going on here at that time in uh you know in 2003 or if there was you know it was um uh you know it was working men's clubs or so whatever there was i didn't know about um there certainly wasn't you know an open mic scene uh, such as would have been appropriate for me at the time um and i thought about you know I and mean, i was going into pubs i was looking at whether i could you know set up there the um you know finding f function rooms in pubs in this in this town you know it wasn't uh I mean, maybe I just wasn't drinking in the kind of pubs that had had separate rooms. You know, it's, it's difficult to say. But when I considered the idea of uh, of starting my own night, which you know I'd had absolutely you know no qualms about doing in the middle of London, uh, or indeed in New York City, where I was uh, where I was in the, in the throes of starting something myself um, in the East Village uh, before I came home. Um, so I don't know why I was uh, I was so intimidated by the idea of doing it in my hometown, uh, but nevertheless I just didn't feel uh, ready to to start something here. Uh, I mean Swansea, you know, like Dylan Thomas said, it's an ugly, lovely town. There is a there's a certain vein of negativity running through this place, um, and being as I'm from here, I maybe I felt like I couldn't take the um the abuse that would come and i was perhaps too sort of anxious um about having to deal with that situation being rejected by my own people perhaps was too scary a concept um so um I, I, maybe i just didn't want to be alone in trying to start it mm. um what, what you know what if i put an advert out there i mean there's absolutely nobody in swansea at this time who i can think of that's the remotest bit interested in standing up and telling jokes i mean writing right their own jokes um and of course so these I, days yeah. you'd have hit you'd have hit facebook and within mm. an hour you'd mm. have had 25 comedians banging on your door virtually Absolutely. and yeah. you know so different times isn't it but that's probably a good time to, to talk about um the other side of the coin of this podcast really which is mm. kind of all, all things mental um mm. and um we <laughs> so so you know we uh we talked before recording and um yours isn't your main issue isn't per se a mental health concern but it it does sort of link quite directly in so you suffer from mm. or you're a you're someone with, who's recently been diagnosed with adhd um and that that's sort of the the, the aspect that brings you to this podcast so for mm. those people who don't know or understand adhd and i will say to you that until we spoke my understanding was it was the thing that quite often tabloid press would talk about, you know, giving the kids Ritalin and, you know, naughty kids mm. in class and, and even mm. suggesting it might be a bit of a myth. 
Um, what is ADHD? Tell us about it. Uh, well, it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And, um, you know, there are, there are many in the, the community who actually disagree with the use of the word disorder um, because like you know it's sort of it's a sister condition uh, autism uh, and other things you know that's you know autistic spectrum disorder i think is uh, the asd expansion um and it's 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 not really something that's wrong because it isn't really treatable as such um it's just a different way of you know of the of brain function um that's a terrible sentence it's yeah, you see brain works differently right that's why they yeah. call it neurodiversity um you know your head works a bit differently you know you learn differently you're capable of hyper focus and you're capable of connecting uh ideas you know in a, in a wider spectrum of uh, of ways and with the attention deficit it means that you are easily distracted um so there's a mix of uh of being so totally focused on something that it's very difficult to to get your attention or you know in the middle of a conversation you'll just have gone away and people will think it's just like you're not listening to me are you not listening to me and then there's this message that you don't actually care what they're talking about no it's just that i got distracted because that's how my brain works um and it will just be thinking about something else and um you know i i think the the whole thing with uh, you know a lot of comedians a lot of creative people um are constantly distracted and living in their own world or is a reflection of the growing discovery that many of us do have uh neurodiverse characteristics about us um and you know when i was growing up in the 70s uh, not very much was known about it at all so um people of you know round about my age who are having you know these late diagnoses um are experiencing uh, a lot of retrospective grief i guess because you're realizing that um uh the depression and anxiety that uh, we have all experienced because of various conflicts and trauma that have been brought about in our lives um by you know rejection because people don't understand our behavior um and, and, and all these kinds of negative things that impact us um people you know are, are becoming depressed are suffering from anxiety you know i don't have a diagnosis for those things um but i would certainly say that my thoughts my patterns uh, of emotional processing um are are hitting some of the pressure points of what i read about these conditions so i will go so far as to say that i i think i'm uh, I've, I've got a good chance of getting a piece of paper for that one, but yeah. you know, it is, yeah. you know, I'm an unofficial depressed person, maybe. Um, so, uh, yeah, it kind of like makes you reflect back on, like, well, you know, I was in that situation, and I've spent years attacking myself for how you know that person's feelings were hurt, or I was ostracised by that group because I behaved in this way. And you spend all this time trying to modify your behaviour, second guessing yourself. Um, you know, I've I've got to the point now where where I'm having a conversation with someone, and particularly uh, like if I'm in work, um, where you know I've had the most hassle for saying the wrong thing. Um, it's got to the point now where people think I haven't understood what they said to me because I don't say anything immediately in response to what they've done, and what I'm doing is formulating a response that I believe will be acceptable to them. 
And that is a reflection of social anxiety created by the trauma of rejection created by ADHD. So, you know, I can see this chain of effects happening um, in my life. And I'm sure it's it's the same for many, many people uh, with with similar heads. And I guess, like you say as well, the, the added factor of it being you're in your 50s and you've now got a diagnosis of that and you look back over the course of your life through an entirely different lens of mm. suddenly you've got that context and and mm. whether it helps or hinders you now to have that diagnosis is is something that probably changes as much as the weather one day you might think it's helpful to know that and to build mm. those coping mechanisms and other days you think well you know, hindsight's still a bitch, <laughs> you know, it's, you look at those events and, and it doesn't necessarily help. But I, I would say from a couple of interactions we've had in setting this up, um, and I know you were reluctant to sort of label yourself with depression or anxiety. And, mm. and I think it's, it feels like from my point of view, you don't want to claim something that other people might see as you excusing other aspects of your behavior or, yes, or lay, lay claim to something for, because some people do that. You, I don't think you are doing that. Mm. I do think you, you, you genuinely do have some very clear anxiety issues um, just mm. from some of the ways we've spoken. And that's not a negative thing, but I think no, no. It, it, it's quite clear to me that it has caused that. And I think that, mm. that that's really interesting from the point of view of, when I then watch your comedy, which I've watched a few bits of yours online, mm. and this is something I've found, I mean, it's only episode 11, but frequently throughout speaking with other comics about issues around mental health, is that if I were to go up to an audience member that had just watched you on stage and said, by the way, <laughs> yeah. you know that Paul, not only does he have ADHD, but is is uh, often quite down and actually quite anxious about stuff too they wouldn't recognize that because your on-stage persona and your on-stage kind of um delivery is entirely at odds with with those issues and that happens quite a lot i think with it with comics so what do you think it is that means that when you when you kind of to use a footballing term uh, when you cross the white line when you go onto the pitch as it were mm. what is it that switches in you to say right i don't give a fuck i'm gonna go out there and smash this I'm not anxious about this. This is my wheelhouse. I'm here. Um, it, for me, it's fight or flight. You know, for a lot of people, um, fight or flight response often switches to flight because it's easier not to get involved. Um, and I have always been a fighter. Um, I'm, I'm uh, you know, you, you put a dog in a corner that's scared, you know, I'm not the dog that sort of like curls up and tries to make himself as small as possible. I will bark at you. Um, and that's the, and that's the kind of thing, thing it is, you know, for, I mean, for, for some, I mean, there are some, you know, comedians who, uh, who in social circumstances would avoid confrontation and would, would um, you know, take the safer path. And nevertheless, they are also performing, um, you know very effectively so um it isn't an automatic thing but i think it's easier for me to be a performer because i've always been loud you know i am a loud um expressor of my fear um mm. i prefer to camouflage than to disappear um if that makes any yeah, sense yeah, yeah. um 
so for me um you know this is this is where it's sort of you know the, the two sides of the coin you know it's it, it's um it can be very crippling when something goes wrong when you feel you said the wrong thing or you don't get the response or the validation that you need um to stop the anxiety ball from growing inside you um that you know can be terrifying and very worrying and fighting the paranoia that goes with it i mean this is something that's endemic in the uh, you know in stand-up comedy it is it is something which encourages paranoia there is you know it's absolutely you know there's no way to escape it you can't stamp it out people are going to be paranoid did i not get that gig because they think i'm rubbish you know it doesn't occur to us in the first instance that they might just be really busy and that 50 people have applied for that and they already know 10 of them you know it's 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 one of those it's one of those things that we just can't see outside the bounds of our own trauma response um and so you know fighting to deal with that is an issue and therefore right you know the, this kind of you know anxiety mindset and everything that goes with it that's a negative aspect of it but by the same token the obligation to come up with the goods on stage and not you know uh, completely shit the bed and you know subject yourself to horrifying embarrassment and self-torture after the fact the only way you can escape that is by making your performance as good as it possibly can be so that means that the the inherent patterns that i've um you know grown into over the years and you know i think me and my mum used to do this as well i now recognize um she would always be planning what she was going to say to so-and-so you know and then what what they'll say if they say this and then what what she'll say and then afterward reliving the conversation you know in telling my dad what you know when she's relating a conversation to you it's i said this she said that and then i said that you they remember the entire conversation and that is post-traumatic stress that's reliving Mm. And I find myself, you know, my, my family have laughed at me for years on this. I come out of a shop after I've bought cigarettes. And if I've made a quip while I've been there, which I more often than not will have done, you'll see me, my, my lips moving because I'm rerunning the conversation in my head. Because... Should I have said it? Shouldn't I have said it? Should I have said it differently? What would have happened if I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Did, you know, uh, did yeah. that go well? Yeah. Does, does that person I, selling me cigarettes think I'm a dick? You know? Can I, can I use it on stage? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to um, deny that. <laughs> so that, that's interesting. So, uh, you know, what's your process in terms of... Uh, what, there's, a, there's a particular performance of yours I want to talk about towards the end, uh, which is your King Kong win. Um, but in terms of writing material then, because I... I I noticed that in some of your more recent stuff, you, you very briefly alluded to the, your current situation. You talked about mm. um, being able to talk about being fat, but only for a limited time because the, the drugs you're on for ADHD are making you lose weight. So you've got yeah. to use the material while you can. But how do you go about, um, do you have a writing process? Is it is it sort of just things occur to you? Do you plan everything out to the nth degree? What's your, what's your process? Uh, I do... Um... In the main, um, what happens is something will occur to me. And whether that's because um, I've just had a phone call that's prompted me to, you know, do a bunch of reliving, maybe have a confrontation fantasy about that. Um, and then during the process of, of trying to fully understand that situation, you know, the character of the person I was talking to maybe, or the, 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 the general details of the situation one finds oneself in 
um, you know, what is fair, what is just, how do I feel, how do they feel, um, and then observing that process. Um, and then uh, thinking of flippant things in response to those details that pop up. So um, it's like a swarm of one-liner fragments that happen while I'm thinking something over. Um, and typically, you know, I'll be, I'll be pacing around, I'll be in the shower, I'll be outside having a cigarette in the patio, you know, but something where, I mean, the, the garden is great, actually, because the patio is slightly raised from the rest of the garden. So when I stand on the patio, I'm looking out at the garden and it's a theatre to me, you know. Um, so I, I get to pretend I'm on stage while I'm coming up with stuff. Um, and that's something that helps a great deal. Um, historically, what I've done, um, and, and this is, you know, goes back to, you know, uh, any acting I've done, the stuff I've done as a musician, I always try, if I can, to get a moment on stage in the empty room and look at the empty seats and try to absorb the latent energy in those seats so that when I go out and perform, it's like I've got a throttle on how much to explode. Um, because obviously, you know, trying too hard is just as bad yeah. as not giving enough energy to it. Um, so I've always had that little bit of... Um, I don't know, ritual. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anybody else sort of talking about doing this kind of thing, but um, that's that's something that I do. Maybe I'm dramatising it for myself because I'm a bit precious. I don't know. But um, when I go out on the patio, I'm pretending I'm in a theatre, the same as some people might hold a hairbrush in front of a mirror, I guess. Um, so the process will go from there. And then once I've got, um, say, you know, what, what feels like a couple of minutes of stuff, I've got a block, then I'll come and I'll sit down and I'll type it into Notepad and I'll start expanding it and I'll be, you know, improvising and you know, developing ideas in my head and just sort of, um, you know, brain farting basically into the document, expanding these ideas. Um, and then depending on how, you know, how good and how focused I'm feeling at the time, um, I'll either you know, save that as, you know, something that's in progress and, you know, do something else. Or um, I'll start breaking it down there and then and turning them into jokes. So it's just like, you know, in any 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 routine, even if it's a story, it's still a series of one-liners, but they're one-liners in context. And um, so I, I just try to sort of to break those down. And that's the kind of thing that, um, that the hyper-focus part of ADHD really helps with as well as the you know luminously distracting part of being able to think of wild connections to things so it can help in both ways the downside of that is that right in the middle of doing that i'll have an idea that connects to something else like a song i've been writing and I've, oh i remembered i've got to go and do that or oh shit i haven't put the laundry on and you know these you know there might be five things that need doing that day and i'll be circularly distracted by all of yeah. those um so, yeah, for process, it's one thing, but of course, in some ways, you're fighting it as much as benefiting from it. So, so when it helps, it really helps, but yeah, other times it's it's kind of it can be a bit futile, I suppose. Um, well, yeah, you end up with fifteen bits on the go, you know, like five uh, songs, two plays, two, you know, two stories, yeah. and which one are you going to work on? Cool, it's overwhelming. Right. Yeah. So, and and that's and like I say, you're the first person we've had on with a, with that kind of issue, um, and, and it is. <laughs> It's it, it's extreme. It's just really interesting to me because I think that 
and it's something I've always been reluctant to do is the self-diagnosis thing and the one of my mm. pet hates which has come up a, a few times on the on the podcast over the a few previous episodes is um mm. when people kind of like we said lay claim to I'm a little bit ADHD or I'm a little bit autistic or I'm a little mm. OCD is the other one that really gets me. Um, oh yeah and and it always it always bugs me because I, I look at people and i think well if you're a little bit ocd everyone is so then no one is you know that mm. that then you're totally misappropriating that that condition mm. for example um but i think that, that a lot of comedians listening a lot of acts listening would would l- look at their writing process and see it's not necessarily too dissimilar from what you're doing i don't have a writing process because i'm a lazy prick so <laughs> i i kind of bullet point things and then generally well I'll, I'll either go one way or the other is I'll, I'll when i'm emceeing a gig i'll talk around the bullet points and see what comes up in the room and and sort of wing it and i generally do okay with that if it's a smaller mm. gig with the regular audience or I'll write it out like a script, like a, a full script, and then that's yeah. the thing. I kind of do one of the two, and if and every time, if I ever write the full thing, it's too bloody long, it's too wordy, and I need to cut about thirty percent straight away. Um, mm. But the, the sort of the, the the brain fart, the brain dump, you know, and then yeah. chip away like a sculptor kind of thing is just mm. something that I don't have the discipline for. But I know a lot of people do, so you know there'll be people listening who who will hear that and say, oh, I do a bit of that. Um, now, the one thing I did want to talk to you about and is, so obviously when I was looking into you to get you on the pod, um, I, I looked at your stuff online and, and, and then I saw your, your relatively recent um, victory at the Comedy Store, which was the London store, wasn't it? Just to yeah. be clear. So the really, you know, the big one. Um, no disrespect to Manchester Comedy Store, but London, the King Kong at London Comedy Store is notorious. And yeah. you, you, last year, um, and what probably about five minutes ago in real comedy terms because of the lockdown um (laughs) you went and won king gong with um a set that was primarily a parody song that Mm. given your fear in everyday life of offending people with your your views and the way you speak Mm. um or you know your interactions it's it's totally at odds of that and it's it's a version of i will survive about necrophilia that's mm-hmm. all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the origins of that song and how you came to, to do it at King Gong last year. Uh, okay, so um, the thing about anxiousness of saying the wrong thing, um, you know, I've been in situations where, um, and, and this is you know, perhaps where um, the, the kind of you know, the behavioural nuances of, uh, of being on the spectrum, uh, which, which I may well discover that I'm on, um, it's the um it's that uh, i've found that you know copying patterns of how people interact with each other in order to you know connect more acceptably and then when i try to do that kind of thing i get uh you know i get a shit kicked out of me because you know i've done it wrong or i don't know that person well enough to do that so stand-up comedy offers me um vindication for those situations where i can not only go to this level of how people talk to each other but also how people do not talk to each other stand-up comedy is a way of me saying 
you can't have a go at me now because I can say whatever the fuck I want up here, you know? Um, and it's, it's kind of like smacking out at the, at, the, at the bullies, you know, or at the people who've just been offended, you know? It's, uh, it's a way of reclaiming my, uh, my freedom of expression by deliberately going over the line um, in order to demonstrate my anger with the world at its heightened sensitivities um, and, you know, my, my anger at myself and everyone else for the amount of, of rejection that I've, I've, I've suffered as, as a result of these, uh, of these diversities. So that's, that's part of the, that's part of the motivation for it. But um, how uh, the I will survive uh, thing came about was, was quite uh, an odd story. I mean, I'm sure that people, you know, who write parodies just think, oh, that sounds funny. Uh, great. Well, we'll just write a few more lines about that. Bosh, bish, bash, bosh. Day's work, you know, and you've got yourself a new song to sing. Not quite how it happened for me. Um, I was working in an office, um, a software developer, you know, by day job. Um, and it was 1999. It was the, you know, the year I started comedy. No, no, no. It was early 2000. So I've been going about six months. And um, I was sat there. And uh, we had, uh, you know, email uh, circulars came round uh, in those days. So, uh, you know, for people who are a bit young to remember that, uh, things were being shared even 20 years ago, but they came in the form of text with masses and masses of, of headers of like, oh, right, so, so John in Germany got this and he forwarded it to Stella in Switzerland and then that went to so-and-so in America. 20 people's email addresses in the middle before you get to what you're actually reading. And what they'd done was they, they'd written a parody of I Will Survive. Um, and it was just basically some football satire. They were taking the piss out of Spurs or whoever it was. Um, and, um, and you were just expected then to read the lyrics, you know, with a tune going around in your head. Now, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm not that interested in football or maybe it's something else. But I didn't think it was that funny. And, you know, typically what we do is I'll go, oh, I could do better than that. Um, and, you know, but I, you know, I just went back to, just went back to, you know, doing my job. And, um, but the tune, of course, was in my head then, wasn't it? Um, and it uh, you know, went round and round and round. And then, I don't know, midway through the afternoon, the line, the first line of the song, at first I was afraid, I was petrified. And I was, at first I was afraid you'd be putrefied. And I wasn't even thinking about necrophilia. It was just, a, it was just playing with the words. And I was so impressed with myself that just by changing one letter, I created a completely different story. <laughs> you know? um, I thought, okay, so why would I be afraid that this person is putrefied? And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, if he's digging her up to shagger or something. And, uh, and then I started you know, going through the original lyrics and then trying to you know, piece together this narrative that by making sort of subtle modifications to the original words, it would continue to violently change the narrative of the song. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes it work so well, is that because so many people are familiar with the lyrics, um, this is one of the fundamental things about parody, is that the more familiar uh, people are with the original, the change in the words um, is, is, is what sort of, you know, it triggers the funny response and if the relationship between the, the joke that's created and the original image is far enough divorced and the words are nevertheless quite similar mm. for me that forms a bit 
of a sweet spot, you know? Yeah. Um, You're not just appropriating the tune, you know, you yeah. properly flipped it round. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and so so the, fir- the first guest we had ever on this podcast is a friend of mine from, from the North. He, he, his reputation mm. is good, but I doubt it will have reached you yet. Uh, is Keith Wilde is a musical comedian mm. and he is someone who despises parodies and thinks they are hack. <laughs> So um, I'm going to say, Keith, most of the time you're right, but this <laughs> a parody had me in absolute stitches. It really did. Um, I listened to it a couple of times, and, and exactly what you're talking about, the, the, the subtleties of some of the changes versus the, the, how profoundly it changed the message of the song is is the secret and and also the joy with which you deliver it on stage <laughs> enthusiasm well, for it is great it's the irony i mean i i knew that uh, that singing it with a sort of like a nasty creepy look on my face it would have uh, would have made it weird you know yeah. um but if you're ironically smiling like as if you're talking about butterflies and sunshine you know um then i felt that that would add to its entertainment value and you know demonstrably it has um, but I finished, you know, I finished writing this thing in an afternoon and I just kind of put it away. That's something I've done. I didn't see myself producing a version of that or ever performing it because, um, you know, stand up was what I wanted to do. I, I got into this. Uh, I think I mentioned this earlier that, um, you know, music offers me a protection and I'm in this for the raw exposed yeah. vulnerability of being a stand-up so if i start doing musical comedy now i'm basically moving the problem down the road aren't i yeah. so i didn't want to perform it um so i just sort of like you know left it there and i showed it to my mate um you know who thought it was funny and a bit weird um, but you know basically that was that now that was 2000 um and so after that point, I went to America, I come back, I don't do stand up for about five years. And then um, I moved back to London then to work. And um, I, uh, I started doing stand up again. And I was coming back and forth Swansea a lot. Though. So one night I, uh, I walked into um, quite a large uh, club actually in Swansea. Uh, and I noticed that what was clearly a stand up comedian was on stage um doing stuff so i went and bought a pint and stood at the back like you do um and started watching the show and um yeah he came out to me afterwards we know our own i felt a wonderful sense of belonging that you know he came straight up to me and said you should get up and do a set because you know he didn't know me from adam uh, so that was nice um so i started going to this it was a regular thing on a tuesday night and i um i showed up there uh, one week, and for some reason, this you know, the existence of this thing. Maybe I'd heard the song on the radio or something, and I started thinking about it. And having you know gained a bit more experience now, and being quite happy that I was a competent stand-up at this point, um, I figured I guess it was okay for me to try this song. Um, now it wasn't going to work on the piano because it's impractical, uh, and I'm not a good enough guitarist to pull that kind of style off on the guitar. And I don't think it would work that way either. Um, so I figured out a sort of a slightly slower, funky groove to go underneath it. Um, and I tried it out in the house. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's worth giving it a go. And I did it that night. And the, you know, what happened, there's you know, about 100 students in this, uh, in this room. I stand up and I get the guitar out and I do this. And honestly, the response was absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, I, I, like, I can only think of one occasion previously where I killed that hard, you know? Um, and it was this song 
And, you know, the realization came over me, you know, like two sides of this coin. It's just like, wow, that's fucking amazing. I'm going to start closing my set with that. And also, yeah, but it's, it's fucking music, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Why is it? You know, I'm like, I feel like Jonah finally going to Nineveh. You know, I've been spat out by the whale and just go, yeah, here's your fucking guitar, mate. Now crack on. You know? <laughs> Felt this sense of doom destiny as I was, uh, as I was having to do it. Um, but nevertheless, you know, having that at the end of, of my set enabled me to, you know, start sort of, you know, climbing the, the rungs of the comedy business where I moved on from an open spot to emceeing to opening, um, you know, and things started to happen for me. And then uh, eventually then I, I decided that, right, OK, what I'm noticing now is that I've got 10 minutes of pretty competent stand up and then five minutes of fucking awesome. This song is a crutch. I've got to let it go. Yeah. Um, so I did, I let it go, um, but not before I went up to King Kong and this was in, I don't know, 2010, I think, um, or 2012. I'm, I'm not really sure when it was, yeah. but it was a long time ago. And uh, I went up there. Now, all I had was this song. I didn't have anything short that I could do that I felt, um, you know, would work because you, you need much shorter jokes. And most of my stuff is stories, um, or it was at the time. So I, I go on to King Gong and I play this song and there's and the response, I've got an audio recording of it and it was loud, you know, it did very, very well. But when I'd finished that song, um, I still had a minute and 15 seconds to last and I didn't know what to say. I didn't have yeah. anything. I was, so I just said, oh, and I said, well, I'm looking into the jaws of a very deep chasm now, aren't I? Because uh, I just want to hear some deleted scenes. And you, know, you can hear me just kind of fucking going, shit, I don't know yeah. what's going to happen. And then a the guy in the crowd shouts out, he goes, cheer this man. I couldn't believe it. Right. And the crowd basically clapped and cheered me until, hallelujah. Yeah. And I got through the five minutes that way. Now, that was amazing. And I'm so grateful for them doing that for me. And it's certainly a massive compliment about, about what I'd given them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I certainly didn't deserve to pass the gong because I didn't have enough material to last that long. Um, and of course, you know, there's later rounds and we have to do a minute and I didn't really have anything. And so, you know, somebody else won King Gong that night and quite rightly so. Um, so then a few years pass, um, multiple cataclysms occurred in my life in 2013 and I had to leave standout. Um, I don't want to take up too much time basically I'm perfectly happy to talk about it it's the subject of my forthcoming Edinburgh show if I ever get to perform it um so yeah so I'm out of stand-up again um until last year when I came back um now obviously I, I started back in in May um and you know getting back into it fairly quickly you know um I, I just I've never really left stand-up as a you know, as a writer, I've always been sort of like making notes and, and having those, those fantasies out on the patio. So I think that's why, um, I didn't really, um, well, you know, I use the old adage, it's like riding a bike for me, you know, yeah. when I came back in, I remembered most of my material pretty well. And it just, so I've, I've just, it's like I haven't been gone for me, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I remembered, I remembered King Gong and I thought, you know what, I'm a much stronger stand-up now. I've got more, um, you know, brevity is levity. I've got tight jokes now that I could use to precede the song. And who knows, maybe I could, you know, maybe I could do better at King Gong. It was like unfinished business, you know? Um, yeah. So I booked in 
um, I booked in to do King Gong, and this was uh, this was the October show uh, of last year. And I'm stood there. I'm on third, and uh, I've seen two people get gonged off at like you know one and a half minutes at three minutes. Um, and you know I'm noticing, and I've you know, I've been to King Gong quite a few times as an audience member, and I've always noticed that what people seem to do is to because it's a gladiatorial environment. So you feel you're, you're on the back foot immediately because yeah. all these people are braying like rabid dogs, you know, wanting to, uh, to eviscerate you because they've been appointed the gatekeepers of one of the top comedy clubs in the world. Yeah. So why shouldn't they be dismissive? And what I've noticed is that, you know, people are getting up behind the mic and they are, they are combative themselves. And it's a completely natural response. You know, I'm being threatened, therefore I threaten back. Um, but of course you can't win a fight with 300 people. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I was, I was standing there and you know, yeah, I'm absolutely shitting myself. Of course I am. Right. This is, this is the biggest gig of my life still, you know? Um, and I really desperately want it to work. Um, more so than when I'd done it eight years previously, it was, it was desperately important. Um, and I was watching, and then it, I don't know where this came to me from, but I realized that fighting them was not the answer, and what I needed to do was join them. Um, and so what I did, and this you mentioned this earlier now, about the sort of the projection and how you uh, turn that around. Well, it's not about from the minute that you walk on stage. It's about from about a minute before you walk on stage. That's when you build up your energy. That's when you prepare to burn you know um and i was looking there so listen, i'm a big bloke right and i've got to get on stage uh simon the guy in the the sound booth has told me that they don't like musical comedy so i'm going to be on the back foot straight away get set up as quick as you can he said so the lead is on the back of the stage so i've got to walk past the microphone pick up the lead plug it into the guitar and start speaking and I've got to do that in a few minutes. Now, if I rush too much, I'm going to fall over and there's going to be a big part of fat bloke on the stage. And while that's going to be hilarious, you know, it's probably not going to bode well for the rest of my set. Um, might have won a few sympathy points, maybe. Um, so I counted the steps in my head of what it's going to take me so that I could step up onto the, I mean, the stage is only about this tall. Yeah. Um, so that can possibly make it easier to fall over. So I've plotted out the steps. I know which foot's going to go down, which hand I'm going to pick up the, the lead with. Um, I know, you know, at what point I'm going to be searching for the hole to put the, to put the lead into the guitar while I'm talking. I've plotted all of that out. And now I've also decided that I'm going, I'm not going to fight them. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm going to welcome myself into them. And, you know, is to, and the best way to do that, I felt, was to greet them as old friends. And addressing them as Comedy Store, I thought was perhaps a smarter move because it's the way I've seen headliners do it for years. Hello, Comedy Store. Right? That's, that's what they do. So that's the way they're used to being spoken to. So I'll be familiar with them. Um, and, of course, it projects confidence as well. So I, I, I figured that that was, you know, a good risk to take. Um, so. Yeah, the moment came. I managed to pick up. Well, as you see on the video, you know, it's just like I walk on, I pick it up, I turn around, and I'm and I'm running. Um, you know, are you feeling good? You're having a good year, and then I'm straight into my first joke, which 
luckily everyone got and agreed with and sussed out you know that joke has not always um there's not always been grabbed like that um but then once i had that one i could you know move into you know some which well i was doing some fat jokes actually um for the next bit um and then once i was so what i did at one point is i moved the guitar away from myself to expose my body um so that they now know that this is a stand-up talking to them and there's going to be a song, but I'm not hiding behind this guitar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's why I moved the guitar down there like that. And then I say, right, it's time now. I, I want to play the song. Are you ready? And they accepted that they were ready. And then it just, you know, it just kind of, it just kind of flowed. And I couldn't believe, you know, I just, I just couldn't believe the response still. You know, you know, and, and what's, without giving it away, cause I'm going to put a link on when I want to put the podcast. Yeah. In. Um, what I found fascinating when I watched it, there's a little bit in the middle while where the audience are almost, almost jeering some of the content, which is the sort of the, the content where it's kind of really, the, the image you're creating is really disgusting, but hilarious. Yeah. And they're almost loving the fact that it's disgusting, but they're kind of, it's almost pantomime the way the audience yeah. is getting on board with it. And, and it's... I, think I, know, I think I know the moment you're talking about. And actually what's happened there is that uh, in the front row, uh, there was a girl, she was, uh, it might've been her 20th birthday or something. Um, so um, they'd made her one of the judges. Um, now, obviously as I'm singing the song, I'm grinning around people and that, yeah, yeah. you know, and then as I get to this point, I mean, it's just as I'm scanning the audience, I accidentally made eye contact with this, woman right very young woman um as i'm saying this particularly disgusting part <laughs> um, and i think it broke her you know um it's just you know I, if i'd have if i'd have realized obviously there's so much stuff going on in my head yeah, you can't yeah, possibly yeah. keep your eye on everything I, if i had control of that i would not have made eye contact with her but that's what happened yeah and she put a card up ah so she's now, getting the tears She's getting the jeers. They are booing her for carding me. And that's exactly what the gong shows are like, isn't it? You get that yeah. thing of, or you mm. get, um, the other flip side of that I've seen is where, so and I think it was at the store in Manchester where mm. two of the three cards went up and the third person steadfastly refused to put the card up. And then the crowd turn on that person. So the act mm. is on stage yeah, and uh, but then the subject of the audience's attention is why haven't you put the fucking card up? This guy, <laughs> his ass. And, yeah, and it's and it's like nothing else. It's like you know, it's it's mm. bizarre, but it is, it's mm. amphitheater, it's Rome, it's gladiators, and it's it's it can be terrifying mm. or it can be exhilarating or it can be both. But seen that happen many times, yeah. and actually, I, I went to the Manchester store uh, and did this um, as well a few months later, and. Uh, in that show uh there was a couple sitting in the front row and uh and uh, danny mclaughlin is uh, is mc and a brilliant act and um and what he's what he's noticed is that the husband is like this, this right so the woman is the judge right but yeah. the husband is tr telling her when to put the card up you know <laughs> and trying to control her decisions yeah, yeah. um and Danny totally called it out and he goes, hey, listen, mate, it's her car. You do what you want, you know? Yeah. In the interval, they left. So that's, you know, that's that's yeah. not a good, that's not a healthy relationship that we're witnessing there. No, I don't think it is, no. <laughs> right. 
but it's a but it's another sort of form of the kind of pressure that's being put on and people you know yeah we're definitely sort of calling across oh come on you know even calling uh, out the name of the person who's got that third card and uh, and won't do it but when i did it at the manchester store and this will help to balance uh this kind of you know glory trip because when i did it at the store in manchester it <laughs> it got very heavily booed really um, oh yeah yeah some people just didn't like it at all well how and, pleased uh, keith wilde because he he won there he won the the king gong there um hey, but but what so uh, but what was interesting was and because uh, you you mentioned about um this song becoming a crutch for you and I don't want to go off into a big tangent about musical comedy, but you, you mentioned, you know, you're having to put it to one side. And, and Keith's sort of big signature tune is a song called Hairy Vagina. Um, right. song that he wrote himself. But he now almost hates the fact that if anybody in the audience has ever seen him before, it doesn't mm. matter what he's done. If he doesn't do Hairy Vagina, then... Mm. It's his wonder wall, is what we always tease him with. It's yeah. that thing we can't get away from it. So I, th I, mm. I really respect the fact that you had this, this kind of banker, this gold material that you know, at any mm. point you can pull that out and you can rescue any gig or you can smash any gig at the close and people are going to remember that. And you've said, okay, I'm leaving that. I'm going to bring the rest of my act up to that level. That's a real ballsy move, I think. Because a lot or of arrogant, whichever way you look at it. <laughs> well, I think so. I mean, and I know of people who've been been on the circuit probably since you started, whose yeah. material has barely changed, and mm. who haven't progressed through comedy because they haven't necessarily been prepared to. Maybe they had a, a six month purple patch with that set, and now mm. eighty percent of that material that was rocking it in two thousand and five. Mm he's still in their set barely changed 15 years later and they wonder why they've not kicked on so i think it's ballsy but it's also necessary you know you, you can't go out and just do the on the comedy circuit you know, we're not talking pink floyd and led zeppelin where you can go out and just do the hits yeah. you know and, and you know you've got to you've got to evolve with it so i think that's great mm. i've got one question for you as we as we wrap up unless you uh, you know you've got anything else you want to add well i just i just wanted to add on that topic i mean lewis ck i know he's persona non grata at the moment but you know whatever is personal weirdness and you know he's, he's still an excellent comedian and a brilliant writer and there's there's um some afterthoughts on a dvd of his where he's he's giving out advice to new comedians and the thing he says he says throw out your shit and write new shit yeah. um because your new shit will be better than your old shit and that's something that i just i just try to remember that as strong as one particular piece is um when you get a new idea, there'll be something about, you know, how you select that idea and begin with. I mean, sometimes you'll get an idea and you'll just go, yeah, I don't think that's going to turn into something that's as good as this. And, and you'll just sort of bypass those ideas and go, well, maybe that feels like a little bit, you know, too hackneyed uh, for, for, for me to go down that path. You know, everybody's got a bit about airline food, etc. Um, and I, I think it is important because, Obviously, there's going to be a weak point in anybody's set, no matter how strong it is, and writing something to replace that so that, so that you know, the whole level of risk is sort of come up into like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like Tetris, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you've, got to have, you've got to view your material, like you say, as a pipeline, and when you get some, some, some mm. gold at one end, you take the shit out of the other, and eventually the whole, everything evolves. That's absolutely the right way to look at it. And, and when I eventually develop a writing ethos, 
<laughs> That's how I <laughs> finally do it. I'm working on it. I am working on it. Um, so listen, we've we've touched on a load of different stuff, um, and clearly, we've talked about how ADHD can help and hinder you comedically. And it's very clear as well that you've had a lot of stuff going on in your life over certainly over the 21 years you've been in and out of comedy. So the question I ask is the question I ask at the end of every podcast, which is, and I'm not going to say because uh, quite rightly it's not something that can be cured, it's not something that can be taken away. But if if you could look view the the negative impact that ADHD has had, and the you talked about sort of trauma, depression, anxiety, all of those issues. If you can view all of those as something that can be removed from the equation, but to do that, you give up live performance on stage as a comedian. That's the price you have to pay. Someone comes to you and says, I've got a deal for you. Here you go. Never pick up a mic again. Never pick up a guitar again on stage or a mic again. Never tell another joke. And I'll take all the negative shit away that's a result of ADHD and all that other stuff. Is that a deal you're going to take? Um, see, this feels like an it's a wonderful life moment to me. You know, I, I would be interested to see what my life would be like if, and it really depends on whether, you know, on whether I'm actually going to lose my sense of humor, whether I'm going to lose my musical ability. It's, um, you know, if I was going to lose those, then I don't know. I, I don't think I'd want to part with them. Um, but certainly the, you know, the, the trouble, um, and the adversity that's, that I've been through um, is something I'd be interested to see what my life would look like. But honestly, given that I have walked this path and I'm still basically alive and I have fruitful relationships and, you know, a certain amount of success in my life, uh, it seems like a bit too much of a gamble to want to trade it. So, you know, in the words of um, Don McLean, there's no need for turning back because all roads lead to where I stand. We are each the sum of our parts and our experiences and even bad experiences are, are good because there is value in them um, to, yeah, just, just making you a, a more sort of balanced and, and uh, resilient person as a whole. So no, I wouldn't take that deal. Yes. I wondered for a moment there whether you were going to surprise me. <laughs> but so <laughs> far, 11 episodes in and it's, it's comedy 11 and uh, taking the deal nil so you know <laughs> i'm interested to see somebody at some point is going to knock me on my ass and say yeah i'll do that deal um but i wonder who it will be um paul it's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> name, you like? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure speaking to you um I, I am going to put a link on to your your king Kong performance um when we put this out so that people can see what we've been talking about um and i'm sure they'll all love it um but thank you very much for coming on it's been a real pleasure Wonderful. Thank you very much. And I'm at that Paul Dennis on most of the social platforms if anyone wants to come and find me and look at my other stuff. Uh, but thanks very much for having me, Graham. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been therapeutic. Fantastic. <laughs>
So that was episode 11 with Paul Dennis. Um, it was a really good chat, really interesting. Um, certainly stuff that I haven't got a huge amount of awareness about. Um, and it was it was really, for me, interesting to delve into those areas. Uh, Paul's really engaging, really interesting, very animated. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to him. If you did, please like the podcast, subscribe, share, tell your friends, and come back next week for episode 12. Thanks. Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a gag and bone man comedy production.